0: Hello and welcome to Daisy is Careering. I'm an author and a broadcaster and this podcast is inspired by my brand new novel Careering. It's a story about the complicated relationship between ambition and anxiety and what to do when you think your job just might be the love of your life but it's never going to love you back. Every episode, I'm going to be talking to a special guest about their own relationship with what they do for a living, how they've navigated the emotional highs and lows of their career, and how we can find a place for ourselves in a world where there is relentless outside pressure to succeed. How can we work on our own terms, and can we make work work for us? This episode is a conversation with a woman I've admired for years, the best-selling author, speaker, brand consultant, and founder of Woman Who, Atega Uwagba. Her books include Little Black Book, A Toolkit for Working Women, which was published in 2017, and Whites on race and other falsehoods. Also, last year's smash hit, We Need to Talk About Money. When I read anything that a taker has written, I feel as though she has climbed into my head and opened a window. I'm so drawn to her work because she takes subjects that are often dealt with in a fairly boring, binary way and explores them with the greatest emotional intelligence and nuance. We talk about how she extracted herself from a truly toxic work environment, the battle to reconcile how we work with our self-worth, and why even the most courageous and confident among us struggle to ask for what we need and what we want when it comes to making progress. taker, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think I might know the answer to this. I mean,
1: when I was a kid, I wanted to be Britney Spears <laughs> when I grew up, which even as that those words came out of my mouth I kind of want to take them back but um in a more serious way I think as a kid I wanted to be a writer um and I think I also just wanted to be sort of quite kind of like powerful businesswoman. I think in my teenage years I wanted to sort of have like a high-flying corporate job oh wow so where did
0: that image come from? Where did you learn about that reality?
1: That was from my school. Uh, my school—it was like a girls' school. It was very sort of careers-focused. It was in the middle of the city, so naturally, a lot of the careers that they talked about—maybe not naturally, but certainly a lot of the career options that they talked about involved going into investment banking or becoming a lawyer. Or, I mean, it was just basically about banking and finance. Um, and this was pre you know 2008 when I would say that that industry didn't necessarily have the image problem that it has now and um, I think they had good intentions in the sense that I mean for such a long time women and teenage girls haven't been encouraged to go into competitive high paid industries and that was their version of feminism was to encourage us to seek out those sorts of things so I think as a teenager that's what I assumed I would do and then in my sort of early 20s I went back to wanting to be a journalist.
0: So at school did you have lots of fabulous women coming in giving career talks and telling you about being a lawyer and being a banker?
1: Yeah constantly constantly Um, my school had quite a robust uh, careers kind of program and they'd have like a careers fair every two years where there would be kind of different industries so there'd be like design or architecture or law or banking or journalism so which is a you know a very privileged thing to have um i would say that it wasn't really particularly focused on like the creative industries um or self-employment obviously it wasn't really a discussion that was being had in you know what was the early noughties so yeah there was a lot of talk and consideration of careers when i was a teenager and then also at home from my parents you know they had quite you know big ambitions for I'm one of three girls and it was always clear that they not even expected us, but wanted us to do well for ourselves, which I would say was a wholly positive thing. So I assumed that I would kind of grow up and have like a good career. And in my mind, that was doing something quite corporate.
0: And it sounds as though that was, you know, sort of in the air at school, at home, everywhere. There was that sense that, you know, you were really talented and able and you could excel and you would excel. And that was kind of the path. Did you ever, where did you first encounter anyone, or have you ever encountered anyone who doesn't seem that ambitious or bothered about it, or not ambitious in the conventional sense that I guess we recognise?
1: To be honest, I think I existed within a bit of a bubble until probably my mid 20s because I went to, you know, a private school and then I went to Oxford and then I went straight into advertising. So I would say that pretty much everybody I encountered was pretty careers focused. And I don't think it's until I kind of broke out of that and became a writer and, and, you know, became self-employed that I met people who weren't as bothered about that sort of thing, essentially, or didn't have the same metrics of success that I'd been surrounded by in my kind of the first 20 years of my life.
0: I mean, you've been, you know, a very successful known writer with a profile for a while now i've been reading you for a long time i've been a big fan of yours for you know what feels like a few years like pre-pandemic but do you think the last two years have changed anything
1: for you in terms of how you work or how you feel about work massively i mean i have it's weird i had a really strange 2021 2020 was surprisingly good for me because i wrote you know most of one book and also published another you know I was very kind of productive and I think it's because I had this quite firm concrete deadlines you know you sign a book contract you've got to deliver by a certain date and that was very motivating and then I found myself slightly more adrift in 2021 also partly because you know when my last book came out in the summer of 2021 that was kind of what I'd been working towards for the past three years and for the kind of The previous five years or so, I'd kind of been doing back-to-back books and very much knew what I was going to be doing in six months' time, in a year's time. And when I wasn't writing books, I was running Women Who or working on a podcast. And last summer, I kind of, after my book came out and in the couple of months since, and honestly still now... I have definitely felt more adrift career-wise in terms of not being sure what I want to do next. You know, I initially thought I'd plunge straight into writing another book and, you know, I had an idea for that and I still have an idea for that and I'm kind of tinkering away with it, but I also felt like my memoir coming out in 2021 was kind of the end of one phase of my career and I didn't I didn't and don't want to write the same sorts of books, so sort of another non-fiction book because I've done that and it's not as challenging for me anymore and it would feel like I was kind of repeating the same thing even if it was a different topic um and so I've started thinking about writing fiction I've started thinking about um writing for tv but those are all things that are very new to me they are out of my comfort zones they're not necessarily things that I hope that I'll be good at but I don't I don't have any experience with it so I'm kind of in a weird phase of not having like a concrete Goal to work towards in that sense, um, and that has been a little bit strange for me. I have to admit, it's kind of left me feeling quite adrift. And I'm trying to embrace it um, because I think that is—I think it's important that I challenge myself and that I try different things. Um, but it's definitely—I definitely feel like I'm in a different phase of my career now. Having published my third book last year, I'm a bit like. You know, there are almost so many options that I don't know what to pursue. And then there's also the question of trying to make money as well. And, you know, how are these things going to pay off? And You know, how do do you pay your bills in the meantime? Um, But I think, you know, I'm going to be working, unfortunately, for a long time. Who knows whether I'm ever going to be able to retire? And so I'm kind of trying to embrace it as just a phase and just another period of time and that that is all part of the process it's part of the creative process kind of having these like peaks and troughs of creativity and having these more challenging periods and having these periods where you're in flow and as i said i kind of know what the goals like i do really want to write a novel and i do really want to write for tv so it's going to be more challenging than what I've been doing so far. I'm, I'm pretty used to journalism and non-fiction writing. Like that doesn't present a challenge for me in the same way that it did when I first started it. So it's weird kind of going back to being a novice. Essentially, that's what I'm finding quite strange.
0: Something I think is fascinating that I really connect with is being self-employed, being a freelancer, doing very creative work, and yet feeling quite unmoored by certainty, uncertainty rather, doing something that in its nature is a bit chaotic and being in that world where you never know what's going to come through on your emails anything can happen nothing can happen and you get these weird like dopamine hits like one thrilling thing and then the sort of crash where you're like I've not had anything exciting this week and (laughs) always like looking and as you say that you know relentless book schedule I mean yeah you've been really prolific that's you know so many books in such a concentrated space of time and you know, that security and I fall into that trap too of, you know, sort of being like in contract and not thinking, oh, my lovely creative work, how exciting, how thrilling. I'm making stuff up just thinking, oh, thank goodness, I've got a solid anchor. I've got like something holding me down and stopping me from bobbing out to sea. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's how, like I said, that's how I felt for the past couple of years. But as I said, I'm trying to embrace it. I think that is kind of part of creativity. And also, like, I often try and remind myself that this is very much the career that I years ago would never have thought that I would have and that I really wanted for a long time so it's just part of the process and hopefully you know you kind of have to do the work you know no one is just gonna I'm not just gonna suddenly magic up an amazing tv script out of nowhere I'm not gonna suddenly just write an amazing novel out of nowhere you have to put in the work you have to put in the time and I think for me what is a uh, strange is doing things that require effort in the sense that obviously writing my books has taken effort but it's just it's i'm just more challenged by what i'm trying to do now and there is that unknown the kind of gamble of will this pay off you know i could write a novel and it could be so shit that i don't even submit it to my publishers and will that will that feel like a waste of time or will that be something i'm glad that i pursued so there is a lot of unknown in terms of how the next couple of years are going to pan out. And I am very much a planner. I'm someone who, you know, likes to have two year, three year, five year plans. Um, I hope that in five years time, I'll look back and be like, okay, that was kind of part of the process and you have something to show for it. I do like having things to show for my time, which I think can be a bit of a trap. Mm. A productive use of your time doesn't always have like a really concrete output. Um, and so, just kind of trying to get out of that mentality, I think, is something new. But I hope that I'll learn something from it. Um, and I hope that it will be fruitful in other ways.
0: That is fascinating because it is such a complicated trap. I think we can be addicted to productivity. And it's a really positive addiction. It's one that everybody praises, everybody wants to see it. It's like the way that our ambition is encouraged, in such a sort of a narrow, linear way. And this idea that you can have. This really joyous, thrilling, kind of internal, exploratory process of writing something. And, you know, novels by their nature are sort of, you know, mutable, odd creatures that sort of unfurl within you and... I hate it, you know, like you having a sort of a a journalism background, you know, know, I write 800 words, I write 2,000 words, there's immediately an editor coming in with feedback and comments and praise and money. And writing a novel is writing 50,000 words all by yourself going, what am I doing? What am I, well, another 50,000 words, because they're normally about 100,000 words long. But that initial, like, is this a thing? And you have to go further and further and further into the woods. And you're like, but I I'm off the path is this
1: a path I don't know right and I kind of keep asking myself is this worthwhile and I kind of have to get out of that mentality like I think I really think about like the economics of it and like sunk costs and want to make sure that I'm using my time fruitfully but that's just not a helpful way of framing the kind of work that I that we do and the kind of work yeah. that I want to do so you know it's yeah it's a it's a different as I said it's like a transition mm. for me but mm. it's one that I think is important I I couldn't dive straight into and in fact the novel that I kind of have in mind that I started working on it initially started out as a non-fiction idea but then I just realized that it would feel like repeating the book I'd just written albeit about a separate topic and that I was just suddenly compelled by the idea of exploring the themes I wanted to explore within fiction and I felt like exploring it within fiction would give me more room. And also it felt like it would scratch an itch. Funnily enough, like when I used to write just for myself, like as a teenager or even in my early 20s, I used to write fiction and short stories. Like I never really, I didn't really fuck with nonfiction until I actually became a a journalist. So um, the idea of kind of making up stories is kind of what I, um, and making up worlds is actually kind of innately what I, the kind of writer I thought I would be. Um, which isn't to say I haven't enjoyed the writing I've done so far, but um, there's a lot of freedom in just making stuff up, um, which you don't have with journalism. Everything has to be supported by fact or interview. You know, it has to be really rooted in the truth. And with fiction you don't have that constraint and I think that's why I'm attracted to it at the moment.
0: Before I forget I really want to speak to you about something that I found so resonant in your book We Need to Talk About and it was so painful to read and so clear-sighted and I think it was resonant for so many people you talked about what it's like to work in a truly truly toxic office I think we're at this really complicated period where there is a sort of reckoning when it comes to corporate culture and also I think it's been forced by the fact that when not in the office anymore in the same way and they're sort of opening up but not really and I think lots of us are you know thinking well home working isn't ideal but there's lots about being in that building with those people and the way all that was organized that just doesn't really help or support anyone or it only serves the the minority
1: and I don't know that that much has changed I wrote um I wrote a feature for The Guardian sort of at the same time my book came out so in 2021 where I spoke to a lot of people who are working in creative companies and within creative industries about toxic workplaces essentially and it just felt like I feel like nothing had really changed not a huge amount of change in terms of the dynamics that I had to endure except that now I think there is more of an understanding that certain dynamics aren't okay whereas I think if I talked about like invisible labor or microaggressions Back in 2013, 14, 15, when I was still working in ad agencies, I don't think anybody would have known what I meant. I mean, I didn't even have the language to articulate those things or to articulate why I felt uncomfortable about certain things or why things weren't okay. So it was almost just like, I just have to put up with it and I just have to accept it, and that's just the way it is. And I think there is definitely has been a shift, you know, thanks to things like the Me Too movement, thanks to things like the Black Lives Matter movement and the conversations and the protests in 2020. I think there is much more of an understanding that these dynamics and these environments are wrong. In terms of them actually changing, I think it's really incremental and, and really slow. And I just know that a lot of people still working in those environments are dealing with, you know, I still get messages from, I get messages from people every day every week who've read my book and said oh my god I relate so much to this and I don't really I know that people relate but I don't want people to relate to the workplace experiences that I described but they do um I mean I think for me my solution was just to escape that I just bounced I was like, I'm just going to become self-employed and I think that was the best decision I've ever made it's not for everyone and some people really thrive in office environments and not everybody wants to be self-employed not everybody wants to work for themselves and it doesn't work for every type of work if you're a writer it makes a lot of sense um But I always, I do wonder whether what I did, I mean, it was self reservation but I sometimes wonder whether that's a bit of a cop-out because the people who kind of have the right sort of beliefs or who kind of want to challenge those dynamics and environments, if everybody does what I did, which is quit and work for themselves, then it's just going to leave all the toxic people behind. So you kind of need people who are willing to kind of work within the system to try and change it from within. But I just... That just wasn't something that I wanted to do. But then, at the same time, I think what you wrote and what you shared
0: was so powerful because I think work does make us crazy.
1: Yeah, and I think also when you're kind of stuck in one of those situations, it's quite hard to vocalise that to your colleagues. It kind of breaks an unwritten pact, you know, that we don't talk about. It's like the first rule of fly Club, we mm-hmm. don't talk about fly Club, you know. Nobody really wants to be like the moaning colleague. But the thing that I've found interesting is, you know, talking to colleagues that I worked with after we've both left certain companies and it's been like oh I was having a really shit time as well and I'd be like oh I had no idea you seemed like you were just getting along with it and seemed like everyone liked you and it seemed like you were having a great time they were like no I, I hated working there and I suffered from a lot of the same problems that you did there isn't really I think particularly office culture doesn't really lend itself to honest discussions about these sorts of dissatisfactions especially because bosses and employers don't want people to have these sorts of conversations because it can kind of have a contagious effect it's like when people leave often turnover within a company if one person leaves and another person leaves it kind of tends to encourage other people to resign and hand in their resignation and the same thing with discussing dissatisfaction it's like that's the kind of thing they want to clamp down on it's quite um it's quite fascist in many ways so um yeah i think often people feel very alone in their struggles within the
0: workplace it's amazing isn't it just how all of those people around us in that space how our moods are affected and i've worked in more than one place but one person one particular person is in a bad mood it just seeps out of them and it's like gloom it's like fog descending and no matter how happy and cheerful everyone else has been it's just that all, and you, you know you come back from lunch and you're like There is an atmosphere here. Something has happened. I don't know what. I feel guilty. I don't know why. I haven't done anything. I think sometimes the way I've survived is I don't want to really admit how bad things are getting or how unhappy I am. And I think, you know, we lie to ourselves. And I think for me there have been lots of parallels between like bad romantic relationships and bad working relationships where I've just gone like but it's it's fine it's just a blip it's just quite bad this month or like this quarter and it's it's gonna be okay
1: I think also with that sort of thing it's difficult to admit to yourself when things aren't going well in work at work because well what options do you have like we well, certainly I do but most of us have to work and it might be easier to kind of say I'm really not enjoying this when if you have the option to do something else but if that is kind of the job that you have you can't really see your way out it's often not that helpful to admit to yourself that you hate it like I remember the last job that I had um working at uh Vice and I, I really hated that and I only quit because so at the time I was renting with some flatmates and we had like a situation with our landlord and so we had to move out um and I moved back home with my parents for what was supposed to be A couple of weeks whilst I found somewhere new to live and within a week of being at home with my parents I was like oh my god I really hate my job and within a week I'd gone in and handed in my resignation but because up until that point I'd had the kind of responsibility to be able to pay Mm. rent you know every month I hadn't really allowed myself to reckon with how bad it was how badly it was affecting my mental health because I didn't see any other options and the moving back home thing just happened so unexpectedly, and it wasn't really something that I saw as like a genuine option until it literally happened almost as an emergency measure. Um, but then I was just suddenly like, "Oh, I don't have to pay rent for the next three weeks or the next month," and actually, that could continue, um, and maybe that could allow me to, you know, quit my job. And, and that's essentially that was the trigger for me quitting my job. And I'm really fortunate that I had that out. But if you don't have that, if you don't have that out. Then what do you do? You, you kind of carry on that job, or maybe you look for a new job. But it's you don't also have the space to be able to have that conversation with you. How friend. did it feel
0: when like the cogs in your brain started turning? And you're like, hold on
1: a minute, I don't have to do it anymore. Did we like were you elated? Were you terrified? Quitting that job was really really scary. There was no elation because I was worried I was making the wrong decision. I was worried that I was kind of torpedoing my career. I was kind of told as much by some of the people that I worked with, you know, they were like, oh, you're gonna regret it, you're making a mistake. And actually in hindsight, it's because they fucking hated it too. And to have somebody, I think what was really, I guess, biting to them was that I was quitting my job. I didn't have something else lined up to go to. And usually when someone quits a job somewhere, they're like, oh, I'm quitting to go here but the idea that I disliked working there so much that I was willing to quit without having another job lined up I think it was it sent a very clear message essentially and I think some people that I worked with felt threatened by that um, although ironically I think the person who was kind of most adamantly in that camp um, left a couple of months later so I think I was just kind of speaking to uh, the fears that this person himself And the beliefs that they'd kind of been squashing down. But no, it was really scary. I didn't have a plan lined up. And as I said, I like
0: to have planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.
2: Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: I had a plan, um, and I just felt like I, I, I mean, it's ridiculous because I was 25, but I didn't have any perspective, and I just felt like my career was going to be at an end, and that was kind of it for me. Um, which obviously with the benefit of hindsight and with a bit of age, I can see that that's not the case, but that was how I felt at the time. So it felt like I was, it didn't feel like, I felt like I was making the wrong decision for my career, but the right decision for my mental health.
0: it's really interesting the pressure we put on ourselves in our 20s i got fired from my first job and i started it i've graduated i didn't even graduate actually i finished university on um the friday started the new job on the monday and went back for graduation two weeks later but i really was just like I I don't want to think, I don't want to stop, I'm so scared, this is so terrifying, I just need to have something to tell people, I need to be able to say yes I'm doing uh, in London and I have to look smart and be in an office and it's all quite impressive sounding and don't you worry about me, I'm adulting just fine and I did an English degree We had a short story society we were like wofty artsy you know it wasn't i didn't know anyone who was like going to the city in their skirt suit like an apprentice person
1: i did know quite a few of those people and i recall graduating and feeling very scared and panicked that i didn't have a job lined up because a lot of my peers had jobs lined up for like the summer that we grad you know not even graduating but like the summer that we as soon as they'd finished term the final term they were off to jobs and often in the city or doing various things and I felt like I'd failed for not having that lined up um, and yeah you know you can kind of look at these things in I do think there is a generational difference because you know a huge part of it is the economic reality of what it was like to graduate in 2011 I was like graduated versus if I'd graduated a decade or two earlier and what it costs to live what it costs to live in London knowing that there's this looming housing crisis. And, you know, I graduated into a recession and just after the financial crash. And I I just remember the headlines being so doom and gloom and being part of this cursed generation whose lifetime earnings were gonna be forever impacted. And I was interviewed for The Times, I remember, for an article and the headline was bright, brainy, keen and unemployed and it was part of this narrative that the media was really pushing at the time of graduate unemployment. I became the poster child for graduate unemployment and the funny thing is I actually had a job at the time but because it didn't feel like a proper job I was like yeah I'm eligible for this article and the journalist also thought I was eligible for the article and it was like I actually had a temp job which turned into a full-time job. so. It's, it's kind of bonkers to think of the insane amounts of pressure that was being placed on graduates and like m- millennials at that time. Um, and I think we couldn't help but absorb it. And I don't know what it's like for people coming of age now and like Gen Z, um, because I think they're kind of maybe the first generation where these kind of more non-traditional career paths are much more uh, commonly talked about and known about, and like you kind of have social media, and I think you can learn a lot from social media about potential jobs. But I was kind of the last cohort of people who expected to graduate and get these good graduate jobs. And when I didn't get one, you know, I tried, I tried an advertising scheme, I tried journalism, I made a vague attempt to like get a management <laughs> consultant job, and didn't get any interviews um you know and I just I once I tried all these kind of quite clear paths and didn't get any of them I was like oh my god I'm fucked like like, I I, what else could I possibly do whereas I think now people who are kind of graduating now have a little bit more in terms of insight into alternative career paths
0: and hopefully that message you know you said that making what felt like a bad choice for your career but the right choice for your mental health hopefully that's something that people are talking about a bit more openly now and really starting to factor in and understand that's important. And, you know, I hate this narrative and I think this is shifting, like, oh, lazy millennials wanting to have boundaries about <laughs> their time. And it's like, no, it's sort of, it's kind of outrageous what was expected and what people put up with and, you know, and culture. And, you know, I've done those jobs where you feel as though you must be there before the boss is there and you can't really leave until they've left and you're not doing anything useful
1: no and i i remember i think the thing that i was really clear about when i quit that job and i think the thing that maybe a couple of friends said to me was that no job should be making you this unhappy like i think it's natural normal to kind of have dips with work and you know everyone has the kind of ups and downs even now as like a self-employed person who works for myself i definitely have dips with work where i'm not as happy or not particularly happy with what i'm doing but at least I kind of know that overall I like what I do for a living. Whereas with that situation, I was so deeply unhappy and I just don't think that's worth it. There's, there's just nothing that's worth it. I was like, when I look back from my deathbed when I'm like 80 or 90, I don't think the thing I'm going to regret is leaving that job. I think the thing that I would regret is having stayed in it for as long as I did.
0: I mean, what's tricky, I think, is since you left that job, you know you have a fabulous career you do so many really really impressive things and I think it's easy to sort of have that narrative like and then then I left and everything was fine and magical and brilliant and I saw it obviously you work hard and as you say you have to do the work and that success comes from so much hard work but I guess really working for yourself and making the work you want and not you know, pointlessly serving other people who don't appreciate it and don't recognise it. But it's tricky because I had a similar thing where I um, I left a job um, just after I turned 30. It was supposed to be my dream job and it really wasn't. And I was miserable and unhappy. And it was the prestige of where I was working massively overshadowed the fact that the job was just not right for me. When I left that job, I think my writing career really started to to go well and i made lots of work i was really proud of and that i feel really good about and i think i was able to make that work because i was happy i never want to sort of say needless to say i had the last laugh i want to do don't want to do a sort of partridge like i was like walking out i feel like like that
1: i feel constantly smug about all the colleagues who treated me like shit and i'm like well now look at me so Maybe that's a very gauche thing of me to say, but I do. Um, But I think you kind of have hit on something there, which is, you know, working at that last job, I had the idea for Women Who, when I was working that final job, and, you know, kind of tinkered with it on the weekends, kind of trying to make a logo and a website, but just essentially was too exhausted from the actual job that I did to really properly pursue it. And it was only kind of when I had the space to it's funny how quickly things happened for me after I left um, that job like literally within a year I had a book deal and had launched Women Who was going really well and that's just not something that I would have been able to do whilst I was working that job but I'm still I was still the same person I still had the same ideas I just was not like physically or mentally or emotionally able to do the good work that I was capable of doing, but just didn't have the space to do. Um, so, and I think that was some, I think I knew when I quit the job, I mean, when I quit the job, I thought, oh, I'll maybe look for another job after a bit of a break. But even whilst I was working that job, I didn't have time to look for another job. And so my initial thought was that I would quit that job to give myself the breathing room to look for another job. Obviously, as things turned out, I kind of took to self-employment and I was like, hey, this is for me, I, I, I like this. and start going well I think sometimes some environments can be so all-encompassing that you don't have yeah space for anything else in your life or in your head and that was definitely the case with a couple of the jobs I work I mean with a previous job I had applied for and been accepted and this is in like 2013 or 2014 so I hadn't yet really decided you know, I hadn't really admitted to myself that I wanted to pursue writing mm. professionally but on a whim I saw something online and I applied for this writing program run by the Arts Council and it was like quite competitive and I got on it within less than a month it was supposed to be a 12 year 12 month scheme within a month I dropped out because I literally could not get out of work on time every other Monday to go to this workshop which started at like 6 or something and I just couldn't make it and I, you know, so that's the extent to which I didn't have the space for anything else in my life. You know, I would planned when I left my job that, you know, I'll kind of like if I need to waitress or work at a bar or something just to kind of have some pocket money and then be able to pursue the other things that require kind of my real brain space. Um, and obviously it's not something that everyone is in a position to do, but I think it is important to recognise that that is often a factor, like m- many people's jobs, even today... My job takes up a lot of my life. It just so happens to be that it's a job that I've chosen and that I like. But if it's not a job that you like, then that is obviously an issue. I think that's so telling as well, because
0: unless you are, say, a surgeon or, I don't know, caring for tiny children or the elderly or vulnerable people, there shouldn't really be any job where... Your manager cannot make things work, so you can leave before six o'clock
1: every other Monday. Mm, I mean, yeah, well will tell that to them, but um, and I think, funnily enough, I don't think I really asked for that. It was just, it was also the kind of place where that yeah. would have been frowned upon because the idea of you having outside mm-hmm. interests um, was kind of seen to compromise on your dedication to the job. So, I wouldn't have said to them, "I need to leave the office on Mondays." every other Monday at this time because I know that they wouldn't have liked it and, and that in itself kind of says everything about that environment
0: and I was doing my hell job I used to for some respite um there was an Itsu, a branch of Itsu that I think was just over 15 minutes walk away and I'd go there and go back and someone asked me sort of where I went to for lunch every day and they were like it's a bit far isn't it it's a long time to be out of the office and like You'd be gradually 40 minutes out of the office.
1: Oh yeah, I've had jobs where it's like you don't, taking a lunch break isn't really the done thing. It's like, okay, technically it's in your contract, but people kind of side, if you took an hour-long lunch break every single day, people would side-eye you. Um, and people happily would schedule meetings during lunchtime, so it was just an unspoken thing. I think there are a lot of unspoken rules and a lot of jobs that kind of enforce people without actually needing to be set out. It's now. so
0: true, isn't it? That sort of that culture of fear, and no one has to actually say anything, but they can really make you feel stuff. And I think that's you know what I struggled with for so long—the sort of well am I crazy? And this feels wrong to me, but there's nothing. It's also nebulous. It's just feelings and things that you intuit and notice. But I wanted to go back to what you're saying about the fact that you still work a lot and it does kind of dominate your life, but now it's something that you enjoy. Because I, I mean, certainly with careering, yeah, I wanted to write about how, you know, my career might be one of the loves of my life, but it has been toxic love it's even now you know the I don't always have the the happy ending I've not I suppose I'm worried that not everyone gets a happy ending and well not everyone gets an ending and as you said I want that for everyone on the one hand for people to be nourished by the work they do to feel connected and recognized and to get the sort of financial and emotional and other rewards that they feel they deserve. Equally I want a world where you can, if someone wanted to, they could work from nine to five and make a decent amount of money that would allow them to save and go on holiday and have a life outside of work and something they can sort of think about for seven hours a day and no more than seven hours a day and I'm not sure that
2: exists. Does
0: that? (laughs) Does that exist? We're still thinking about ambition in this super narrow way. And if we step out of that, um, I have been trying so hard. You know, a meme someone said, and i try desperately trying to work out who to attribute this to, and I've not come up with anything. Um, there are layers and layers and layers. I have no dream job. I do not dream of labour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good And um, I sometimes... You know, I feel like, okay, I'm lucky in the sense that I like my job, but I am also very clear on the fact that it is still work, you know. I often joke with a friend, she's like, hey, if you were, like, super, super rich and, you know, you were like, suddenly won £100 million in the lottery, what would you do? And I would do mostly the same thing, just at a much slower pace. I think I'd probably have more kind of creative and experimental freedom because I wouldn't be as worried about actually making sure things pay. But, um, yeah, it's there is something... we. I, I'm very honest about the fact that I, that my work is kind of indivisible from my identity and I think more so because of the nature, probably for you as well, the nature of what I do as a writer, like you are literally sharing yourself and your ideas so your identity is very much tied up with your work. Um, For me personally it doesn't always feel, sometimes it feels like a bad thing because your mood is dependent on how things are going professionally, sometimes that's amazing, sometimes that's just boring, sometimes that's bad. I don't think I ultimately mind it but I think it is a luxury that is born of the fact that I am doing a job that I choose to be doing Um, but I also do try I think something that I want to try and do um, just as kind of like a life's goal is to kind of split apart my own sense of kind of worth from my professional success Um, just because I think that's a dangerous way to live um, and I've seen people kind of come a cropper, and, and that is fine as long as your career is going fine and going well, but if it isn't, that leaves you in a really sticky position, so I'm kind of trying to preemptively, <laughs> maybe I sound like a pessimist, but I, I think I want to not have my sense of value as tied up with the work that I do and be able to treat it as more of a job.
0: I understand completely, and I feel like I'm in a very similar place where you realise, you know, when it does make you happy... And when you do have those great moments of excitement, foundation, there's there's nothing better. It's it's, not it's just it like drugs. You get a little bit of it, and it feels great for a moment. Then you think,
1: why isn't there more? It's like drugs. Like my tolerance exactly. has, has has built up. Mm-hmm. Like the things that. A couple of years ago, and maybe this is natural because your career grows, but the things a couple of years ago would have made me excited and feel mm. thrilled for days, if not weeks, if not months on end. I sometimes get an email like that, and I'm like, eh, okay, just another thing to do. And you kind of need a bigger and bigger high yeah. to kind of feel happy. And in some ways, it's good because it's motivating and you're kind of chasing the next thing. But I do recognize that that isn't a healthy way to live because that's just not how life works
0: i get like you know the office and its problems it's really really hard to go our own way when the way we feel about work and money the way we're exploited and i think that there is a book called work will never love you back oh yeah
1: yeah by sarah Jaffe.
0: and i emailed her for a quote and i wanted her to kind of get into this idea that i had that i think we exploit ourselves and she said no, that's not possible. We can't exploit ourselves. The system is very exploitative and her language is very, I suppose, clear and, you know, direction about the political problems and the practical problems that capitalism brings. And I was kind of frustrated because I wanted more on like the emotional part of that, that I think I've definitely had moments where I felt I've been...
1: I've sort of colluded in my own exploitation. But I kind of get what she means. It's difficult to kind of the idea of self exploitation, even if you say you're kind of colluding in it, it is because of these pressures and imperatives on Mm. you. Like most of us work because we need the money, you know. Like obviously the the closer your job is to something that you actually enjoy doing and perhaps might even do even if you weren't paid Mm. to do it and might do as a hobby or in your spare time, great. But most of us do work because we need money. And so I think that is always at the back of all of our minds. And it's what makes us accept or tolerate less than ideal conditions because we need the money. Because look, all the jobs, all the toxic jobs and all the toxic environments, if people weren't being paid to be there, they'd fucking walk out (laughs) tomorrow. So it is ultimately about the kind of economics of it. And I think that's another thing that I try to remind myself Um, certainly my interactions with Mm. other people that I work with professionally is that it's a transaction which can sound really cold because I have some really amazing professional relationships that don't really feel like professional relationships that feel more like friendships you know Um, but I do remind myself that in certain situations that that is it is transactional Mm. you're paid in order to do this work and the reason you're paid to do that work is because whoever is paying you is going to make more money more money of that work it's a pyramid scheme a bond that feels quite nice sometimes (laughs) I mean yeah capitalism is a pyramid scheme that is like it's the definition of
0: (laughs) I just heard Glennon Doyle say on her podcast the thing about capitalism is the house always wins and it's gambling and you're at the table and you get these little wins and the little wins get bigger and it's really exciting but ultimately you know yeah the casino is going to take from you until until you die or leave. And it re- I really felt punched in the gut when I heard that. Like I had to
1: kind of pause the podcast and take some deep breaths. And some people are high enough on the kind of pyramid or on the ladder where it does feel like they're winning. Like if you make enough money, then it, will feel, it would feel very different to be paid £100 to write an article than it would be to be paid a million pounds to write the same article, for instance. If you're making enough money from certain sorts of jobs, it can feel... Like you've won, and that is the money itself is enough of a motivator. It's just that obviously the vast majority of people aren't in that position, and it's why it's I don't know. I mean, I don't think job satisfaction necessarily automatically increases if you have a higher salary because people always, even people who are paid well, believe that they should be paid more. It's kind of just a human fact. People always think they should be paid 20% more than their actual salary, or something. It's a stat I read somewhere but I do think you can definitely feel like you've got a better deal out of capitalism at certain points than at others.
0: I think a lot about that moment in Mad Men where Don makes Peggy work on her birthday and she says something like you never appreciate me you never say thank you and he says something like that's what the money is for.
1: And he was right <laughs> like in a way I know it's really cynical but he was making a really clear point like this is a transaction i think it was almost she had allowed herself to and obviously it was kind of painted as quite a callous scene but she had invested mm. so much emotionally in that company and in him and that was him reminding her that it's a transaction i just think it's yeah. like a beautiful line and it's obviously quite a callous way of looking at the world but you know he was able to exploit the fact that she had an emotional connection to the job and to him to get more out of her but ultimately, he was just getting better value for money. And I think that was... I, I mean, in this fictional... I can't remember how, you know, the plot line after that, but I would say in this fictional Mad Men world, I hope that was a good reminder to Peggy that that job and that office wasn't her family. It was an employer, and people need to remember that.
0: Finally, I would love to ask you, what does the phrase dream job mean to you?
1: Oh, I feel like I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, is that I don't dream of labour. <laughs> um, but my dream job, something that, something that makes me happy, something that
0: makes me consistently happy. Does that feel as though that has always been your dream?
1: I think, yeah, I think having been unhappy in previous situations and previous jobs, I realise that that's kind of fundamentally what I want out of life, isn't it? And a job that will allow me to do that, whether it's in the actual work itself, or the money it gives me, because I, I do, you know, people say you can't by happiness but I'm like well money fucking helps I'll (laughs) be honest so um I think a job that allows you to be happy and doesn't make you unhappy that's kind of the dream isn't it
0: thanks so much for listening to Daisy is Careering the podcast is produced by Dale Shilf for New Alaska and hosted by Acast with special thanks to Sphere my novel *Careering* is published by Sphere, and it's out now. It's available in hardback from all online bookshops, with a special signed edition available from Waterstones. It's also available from Amazon, where you can find the ebook and the audio read by Celine Buckins and Joe Hartley. For now, I leave you with this from Amy Poehler: "Your career will never marry you. If your career is a bad boyfriend, it's healthy to remember you can always leave and go sleep with somebody else."